Well, welcome again, all of you. It's so good to see you. Yes, uh, we were gone last week. My wife and I had a Sunday off, which was great. And I'm grateful to all of you who had a chance to be here and to serve. You got to watch a video from our senior pastor, Richard, as we started our new sermon series on the Book of Romans. And we're going to do something I don't think we've ever done at Bethany before. We're going to go through this whole book over basically the next school year. We're going to take a couple of breaks here and there for Christmas and for Easter, but really we're going to be living in the book of Romans for quite a while. So get used to kind of turning there, get used to having that open on your Bible app. Today we're going to cover some themes from Romans chapter 2. Last week was, see if you can guess, Romans 1. We started there. Our senior pastor Richard uh, handled the teaching for us and it was great. I'd encourage you to listen to that. The two themes that I want to hit on in today's message are there in your bulletin, and I want to just offer kind of a personal word on this. We're going to talk about how God is just and how God is kind. Now, if you're like me and you grew up around church or you have some familiarity with kind of the scriptures, you might kind of go, okay, great. Like, I think I know where this is going, or I have an idea in my head of what God being just and God being kind is all about. Those are nice, good things to know. I'm at a place in my life where I'm, I'm actually kind of hungering for these things to take deeper root in me. And I want to describe what that looks like for just a minute. As a parent, it is very obvious to see the places where I am not so kind, because that is how God wonderfully illustrates through my children how my not kindness can come out. That's just how it works. Lacking an appreciation for God's goodness and his justice is something that I think I can struggle with more, because I don't necessarily have that sort of backdrop every single day. Here's what I want to say. As I was studying this week, as I was trying to prepare for this message, I started out my week thinking, there's a lot in this text about judgment. There's a big warning at the beginning about do not judge. That's one of the biggest accusations against Christians, by the way. If you read any sort of recent surveys or studies, like from the Barna Group, one of the reasons non-Christians don't want to affiliate with Christianity is Christians are judgmental. They look down on other people. They're prideful, all these kinds of things. I started out my week thinking, like, I don't think I have a problem with judgment. Like, I really thought that when I sat down to sort of study the text. You may be coming at that too, and if so, like, high five, we're on the same team. Like, you're in good company. I believe that God wants us to look deeply at our hearts. And at this stage in my life, at 36, I want to look even more deeply at the things that I take for granted. Do you want to do that too? Because I think we can, and I think we should, Look at the places where we might be judgmental. We should look at the places where not just we're lacking in kindness, but we're maybe even scoffing at kindness. I think this is one of the unique challenges people on the east side face. When you work in a corporate environment, when you work in a startup, when you're in an industry that is so fast-paced, whatever it may be, when your kids' lives are so spread out, it's just crazy. I think the pace at which we live uniquely chains us to the cultural expectations around us, which is, in my opinion, to be cynical or to scoff at kindness as being valuable. We're going to talk about how that might play out in your work and in your parenting and in your school life, because I think there's a lot more to kindness than just sort of this syrupy, like, give everybody a hug kind of thing. So I want to step into that. I want to step into each week into these themes, kind of trying to own them personally, trying to say, like, God, how am I falling short in being judgmental? How am I falling short in kindness? I want to encourage you, if you didn't grab one of these notebooks two weeks ago, please grab one. These are for everybody. We want them to be primarily for visitors moving forward, but grab one because I want you to write down these themes, justice and kindness and all the themes that we're going to touch on in the weeks to come. I want this to be a personal journey for us. I know it's going to be that for me. I believe it's going to be that for me. 
And I so want it to be a personal journey for each of us. So this week, you want to take one of the pages in your journal and just write down, God is just. Can you say that with me? God is just. That's one of our most important themes. You can write down at the top of a different page, God is kind. Can you say that with me? God is kind. I'm getting us to say that together because if we say it enough, we might start believing it. So write those things down. Start to kind of doodle for yourself. Where do I see these themes? Where might I be missing this in my life? Did I see this enacted with one of my kids or one of my coworkers? Who's someone that God is leading me to pray for as I think about how God is just, as I think about how God is kind? Use these notebooks as a tool. If you didn't get one, no shame in that game. You can grab one as you head out. You can write stuff down whenever you would like. But I want this to be a journey for us that's personal because I thought at the beginning of this week that it wouldn't be, and then it was. So I offer that as a word of encouragement as we begin. We're going to talk about those two things. God is just, God is kind. And then we're going to talk about who we're supposed to be. And those three ideas are outlined in your bulletin. I'd encourage you to take notes if you find things worth writing down. And I want to invite us now to hear a different section from Romans 2 than the one Garrett read. Romans 2, starting in verse 1. These are some harder words about judgment. So brace yourself. Paul's writing to the Roman church. Therefore, you church have no excuse, whoever you are, When you judge others, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with the truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things, when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you'll escape the judgment of God? This is going to be one of many, many times that Paul ends a statement with a question, which I know can be kind of hard to kind of keep track of. This is his teaching method. This is the Socratic method. Ask a question, draw people in. So we're going to try to unpack these things as we go. If you were here last week, you know that Paul's thinking, his teaching in chapter one, a lot of it had to do with this incredible freedom that God has given to us to live in certain ways. You can live the ways of God. You can follow his paths. You can lean into his teachings, Paul says, or you can kind of lean into the ways of the world. And the logical conclusion of those things will be completely different. Leaning into the ways of God, the logical conclusion of that will create life and joy and things that we want. And leaning into the ways of the world really and truly will create things that we don't want, that are destructive for us, that are like a cancer on the soul. If you aren't familiar with some of that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon on Romans chapter 1. The gist of it is when we pursue our own ways, we always end up hurting and hobbled. So an example that came to my mind of this is I used to play indoor soccer many moons ago, and I sprained my ankle really bad one time. Like I stepped on a guy's foot and turned and fell, and fortunately I was in my late 20s, so it didn't take me that long to recover. But that same night, I sprained my ankle And I was heading home, and I didn't know if I should go to the doctor or not, or urgent care, or anything like that. But I was really hungry. And if you know me, being hungry is something that I'm going to take action on. Like, we're going to solve this problem first. The ankle can wait. I need to get food. Now, why I didn't think of going to a drive-thru, I don't know. But I went to Safeway, and I was hobbling around in a Safeway trying to find, like, a sandwich or something. Like, picture someone, like, clearly with an injury. Like, I'm all sweaty from my soccer game. Like, I'm a hot mess. And I just thought, oh, I'll solve it this way. That is such an image for us of what all of us try to do. We are hobbled. We are injured. We are lame with our sins and our brokenness. But we're trying to make it around Safeway because we're fine, right? Don't worry about the ankle. I'm good. No. Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, don't do that. Don't kid yourself. Don't believe the hype. 
Now here in Romans chapter 2, he's kind of completing that thought by saying, look, here's how you know the things that you're doing are wrong. It's because God knows. When it says that God judges when God is just, that means that God has perfect awareness and is perfectly responsible for sitting in the seat of, I see what's good in your life. I see what's bad in your life. If you want to listen to me, I actually have the power and authority to lead you into the goodness that you deserve and you desire. Apart from me, you don't see it. And apart from me, you're going to put yourself in my seat and you do not belong in my seat. The judgment seat is God and God's alone. And later on, Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians, all God is focusing on when we talk about judgment is, do you know Christ? It's not, did you get drunk last night? It's not, were you sleeping around? It's not all these things that I think people outside the church would accuse the church of being judgmental about. It's, do you follow Jesus Christ? Let's start with part one. Step one, do you follow him? The other stuff matters. Your behavior matters. How your heart has changed matters. But start with step one. That is what God is keenly interested in looking into when we talk about judgment. It's not, did you behave rightly? It's, is your heart changed by the good news of the gospel? This is the theme throughout scripture. We see this over and over and over again. God's people say, I'm good. I'm going to go hobble around Safeway with a bad ankle. And instead, God says, are you kidding? (laughs) I have something so much better for you. This begins in the garden. Adam and Eve say to God, no, we got this. And God says, really? You, really? You do? I just created the world. Are you kidding? They're, they're judged. They're, God says to them, you can't live here. You got to leave the garden. They were judged not because they were terrible people, not because God thinks he's better than them, but because they chose not to live God's way. And that only leads to death. And that's Romans 1. All of humanity was judged in the flood. Jacob and his sons were judged by this massive famine that happened. Egypt was judged for its oppression to the Jews. Israel wandering in the wilderness, judgment for their failure to trust and follow God. It goes on and on and on. And we hate the word judgment. That is one of the strongest words we could possibly use in our culture. To accuse someone of being judgmental is like high crimes and misdemeanors, right? It is tantamount to treason. It's almost as bad as calling somebody ignorant. Judgment is not something we like to walk into. And yet the good news of the gospel is that God is the final judge of this whole world because he's going to make it right. God is going to bring about judgment and clarity and the end of time and the end of history doesn't just end in a fireball. It ends with the end of oppression, with the end of slavery, the end of racism, the end of sexual abuse, the end of human trafficking and starvation and inequality of every kind because that's what the end looks like because God belongs in that seat. And we mess things up when we put ourselves in that seat. That's what we mean when we say God is just. Can you say that with me? God is just. There's a whole lot of other ways to talk about the justice of God, but I want us to think about it this way. It is through his relationship with us that we find our way forward. It is not because he is judging us over and over and over again. He is looking at us and saying, is your heart with Christ or is your heart still living in the world? And how can I lead you forward into a heart that's increasingly like Christ? Anything else that we care about, anything else that we might want to judge other people for is toxic to our souls. If you started out today thinking like I did at the beginning of my week, that you're not a judgmental person, go watch the other cable news network. Go read the editorials. I, I, I get a newspaper, like a physical newspaper. So one of my friends said to me this week, like, don't you have to wash your hands afterwards because you get ink on it? I'm like, what? Like, who cares? Like, it's a newspaper. If I read the editorials, left or right, red or blue, I will be judgmental. It happens. If you think you are exempt from being judgmental, take a step towards someone you disagree with. 
Just do it. Get out of your echo chamber. Go have a conversation with someone you might not see eye to eye with. I'm not saying that to say, ah, see, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm saying that because I'm preparing us for what we're going to do in a moment before we come to the table and we're going to confess. We live in a time when there is division and tension like none other that I've experienced in my lifetime. It's happened in history, but not in my lifetime. And we need to confess. And if, again, you start out like I did this week, I don't know that I have a problem with judgment. Confession is for you. Confession is for me. God, help me to see the things that I can't see. Help me to see the judgment that I bring that I'm just going to be ignorant to unless you sort of hold it out in front of me and help me look at it. And when we confess, we come to the table, we come preparing ourselves for a reality that we need to look different. And that God is doing that work in us through the Holy Spirit. So, first part, part one, God is just. Can you say that with me? God is just. That's good news. It brings life. It's hard, but it's going to bring life. Part two is God is kind. Will you say that with me? God is kind. Can you say that and not smile? Like you have to say that and smile. God is kind. Say it with me. God is kind. He is so kind. When is the last time you saw an act of kindness that just moved you? You saw something happen where you went, oh, that's good. We have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and an 18-month-old. And the 18-month-old right now, of course, just wants to be doing whatever big brother and big sister are doing. And so uh, she will sit on the floor in the living room when the big kids are up on our couch. And she'll just put her arms up and look up at her brother and sister and go, up, up, up. Right? I mean, this is her mandate to her brother and sister. Get me up there with you guys. And so the other day, I saw my six-year-old come over to her and put his arms around her and pick her up a little bit. And then she was able to put her hands up on the couch. And then I think he picked up her legs and kind of flipped her onto the couch. Good big brother, right? But he was kind to her. Kindness simply means a sympathetic or helpful nature. My son was sympathetic to my little girl wanting to be up on the couch. That's kindness. How is kindness doing in your industry? How's kindness doing in your work, in your office building? How's kindness doing at your school? at your dinner table, in your family of origin, was kindness a virtue or was kindness an opportunity to just go after somebody, to stand on their shoulders, to take them down? What would a small act of kindness look like where you live, where you work, where you play? Kindness is something that I think we are most deeply cynical about as a culture. Oh, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really change anything. If you're going to be kind to somebody, they're just going to come walking all over you. I mean, do you hear the cynicism in that? That is not the witness of our scriptures. Listen to what the scriptures say in uh, verse 4 of chapter 2. This is kind of continuing that thought about judgment. Those of us who don't think we have a problem with judgment, do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you look at those things about God and go like, I don't need those things? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's a rhetorical question that we could pull apart for the whole morning. God's kindness leads us toward repentance. Where does God's kindness lead us, Bethany? Where's it going? Toward repentance. God's kindness is leading us toward repentance. He is kind for a reason. He's not kind because he wants to get something out of us. He's not kind because that's what God's supposed to do. He is kind for a purpose. And here's how I would rephrase repentance. God is kind to us and for us because he knows how badly we need it. He knows how badly you and I need it. What am I talking about? Skip down just a minute to verse 16 
in Romans 2. Paul's talking about the end of time, and he says this, On the day when, according to my gospel, God, through Jesus Christ, this is super scary, will judge the secret thoughts of all. God knows our secret thoughts, and he, in his goodness, in his good justice, will sit and look in on our secret thoughts and go, Ooh, that one's rough. Okay, that one's better. Mm, not so much. He alone has the right to do that. He alone can do that perfectly. Human beings can't do that perfectly. If he knows your secret thoughts and my secret thoughts, and worse than our web browser history, and worse than the things that we've texted to our enemies, and worse than the worst email we've ever gotten or ever sent, if he knows all the things behind that, for any human to know that would be terrifying. But for a God to know that who loves us and who is kind, don't you think that allows him to explode his kindness on us in ways that are perfectly suited to who we are? He knows when you struggle to communicate with your spouse. He knows when you have a sibling that you just can't stand. He knows when your coworker has just given you all kinds of grief and he knows what goes on in your hearts and he says, okay, so I'm going to situate my kindness in such a way that speaks to you, that touches you, that ministers to you, and that ministers to this brokenness that you're experiencing in the world because it's not supposed to be this way. A God who knows our secret thoughts, we can be safe with. We can be safe with someone who knows us and loves us through that. That's part of the beauty of being married, at least in a healthy marriage. That is part of what is not scary about being known by God. is because he can perfectly meet our needs through his kindness. You and I can be safe with a God who knows how messed up we are and loves us anyways. He knows how messed up we are and loves us anyways. And it's leading us to what? Repentance, to transformation, away from death, away from Romans chapter 1, judgment and pain, and toward the kind of life that he wants for us. And I'm really concerned, actually, for us, Bethany, that a lot of us don't believe we need this. We don't believe we need the kindness of God. I think we don't believe this because we've been successful, or, or things seem to be going pretty well, or our kids are relatively healthy, or our business is doing pretty good. I think we're kind of saying like, look, external factors considered, I'm fine. And this has been me. External factors considered, I get to walk my kids to school. I have a home that I love. I'm in a great neighborhood. All these great gifts from God. And I can have just a deeply broken heart as anybody. And I can long for the kindness of God and not even be able to articulate it for myself because my brokenness so blinds me to the places where I need it most, where I feel most insecure, where I most lash out at one of my kids, where I'm most ignorant of my wife's needs. All of these things. The only remedy that I need in that moment that will actually meet the needs of both my heart and my mind is the kindness of God. That word kindness in the text, that actually comes up in one of my favorite passages in scripture in Matthew chapter 11. It's when Jesus says to his disciples, come to me, all you who are burdened, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I have an easy yoke. That word easy is the same word here for kindness. It's a synonym for good. I have a good burden. I have a good yoke to invite you into. Bethany, do you want that? Do you have that? Do you celebrate that? Do you accept God's kindness as his call to you to respond to the evil and to the cynicism and to the pain that we see in our world? that we are called to be kind. I had lunch with a friend this week that works at one of the big tech companies. And I asked him, like, what does kindness look like in your work? What does kindness look like in this industry? 
And I thought he would say something like, eh, it's kind of ridiculed or whatever. And he said, you know, under a previous regime, it was ridiculed. Now, the best leaders in this company are the ones who are kind. Because they're delivering truth. They're delivering real feedback. They're helping get products better. They're helping take better care of customers by being truthful and by making sure that that truth is enveloped in kindness. And the phrase that came to my mind, and I'd love for you to write this down, is, I'm here to help. Can you write that down? I'm here to help. If I picture the best leaders that I have had, the people who have done the best job managing my work, caring for me, caring for my family, they say things like, I'm here to help. I'm here to help you. That's your homework this week, Bethany. Wherever you work, wherever you play, wherever you study, when you're driving your kids, whatever it is, try to use time this week. I'm here to help. Let that be God's vehicle to employ his kindness through you, wherever you are. Maybe you say that a lot. If so, great. I want to hang out with you. I need to use that phrase a lot more in my life. I'm here to help. Can you say that with me? I'm here to help. Make that happen this week, you guys. You don't have to email me and tell me about it, but if you do, I would love to hear those stories. I'm encouraged by those stories. I'm here to help. Let us push back against the cynicism and the despair of our world by simply saying, I'm here to help. I'm here to help. Okay, what's the first point? God is just. Second point, God is Did we smile when we said that? God is kind. He's kind. We need it. So how does this play out in real life? Our world is aching for this to happen in real life. And to do that, I want to illustrate this. I want to take the scripture that Garrett read for us and then use a different translation. This is the J.B. Phillips translation, which I found to be really, really helpful as I've read through the text. And I kind of rephrase it a little bit. So I invite you to just listen to this. This is verses 28 and 29. Paul's continued his argument. He's talked about justice. Now he's talking about what does it look like when people's hearts are actually changed by this, when we start to see it hit real life. He says this, and just hear these words. If you want to close your eyes, set your pen down, just listen. Paul writes, I have come to the conclusion that a true person of faith is not the person who is merely faithful looking. And real heart change is not just a matter of the body. The true person of faith is one who belongs to God in heart. A person whose heart change is not just an outward physical affair, a faithful looking person, but is a God made sign upon the heart and the soul. And it results in a life lived not for the approval of man, but for the approval of God. Are we faithful or are we faithful looking? Are we faithful or are we faithful looking people? I've had to wrestle with that, and I bet you I'm going to be wrestling with that all through the rest of Romans, because Romans has so many incredible insights like that. A God-made sign upon the heart and soul that results in a life lived not for the approval of man, not to have your boss like you, not to have your spouse like you, not to have your kids like you, but for the approval of God. Paul's telling the Roman church, this is the goal for everybody in your community. Show them my justice, show them my kindness, but start with your own heart. If you can't receive my justice and my kindness in your heart, there are going to be bigger problems down the road. What does this look like for someone who actually lived this out? There's a book called Shangtung Compound, which is not about a chemical element. It was about a pretty terrible place, an internment camp in China that the Japanese set up for people who were in their country that they then removed from their country at the start of World War II. 
very small spaces. I mean, if you, you, know, you hear the phrase internment camp, you can kind of picture this. And the people that were taken out of Japan were people like missionaries and priests and leaders from other countries, foreigners who happened to be in town. And they went to this place for two years. There were 2,000 people crammed into one city block. That's tighter than New York City. And there were food rations. They were given some freedom to kind of create loose systems of how to govern each other. There were work assignments. We want to make sure that we hit these targets. Maybe this sounds a little bit like your company. And what happened was, despite all of the altruistic intentions of the people who came into this setting, the people who were there in the compound, leaders and heads of state, foreign dignitaries, people who'd been brought in and imprisoned there to try to create a system that was equitable and good, guess what happened? None of it worked. People wouldn't stick to their work quotas. People wouldn't keep the food. They were stealing from one another. The priests and the missionaries were among some of the worst at this. They were fighting. They were stealing. There was no difference except... For one person, a man named Eric Liddell, and if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, he was one of the main characters in that. He was one of the runners who had a passion to take the gospel to the Far East, and he was in Japan, and he was sent to this internment camp in China. And what did Eric Liddell do that was different? According to a guy who was there, Eric Liddell looked around, and he saw teenagers who had been brought to this internment camp with their families. And he poured out his life for these teenagers in an environment of chaos and, you better believe, cynicism and outright evil. He looked at those teenagers and said, here's a group of people that I can make a difference with. Here's a group of people that I can influence. And so he cooked for them. He made sure that they had food. He gave them games to play. He helped lead them in soccer matches and created opportunities for them to just be kids. And in the midst of a terrifying situation, he found a way forward through the gospel, through being someone who at the heart looked around and said, okay, this is a big problem. I don't know that I can solve this whole thing, but there's one group of people that I can influence. There's one place where I can make the kindness of God clear. There's one section of this whole messy thing that God has given me to steward and to use well. And I bet you know where I'm going with this. What is the one place of influence that you have where you could be a person of justice and kindness in the week ahead? What if there's one person at your work that's been driving you crazy and now's your opportunity to get uncrazy by simply loving them and caring for them and bringing them their favorite coffee? It's amazing what coffee can do. It just, I mean, our whole world would be better if we just brought each other coffee all the time. Influence where you can with what God has given you. That's the way to live into any of these virtues, but especially the virtues of justice and kindness. You want to make those real? Put them in play. Don't try to solve the whole thing. If your company is really problematic, focus on your team. Get micro, not macro. Get in proximity to people that you can influence well. Pick one person. Influence where you can. Use that phrase, I'm here to help. Remember? Use that phrase with just one person this week. If you're not sure where to start, come talk to me. I had coffee with somebody this week that works for Eastside Academy. They need three women to step up and be mentors to the wonderful students that they serve. That is a great way to use your influence in a a micro setting. Another thing you can do, this is another practical step, meditate on your brokenness. One of the things I love about AA is that it starts with a ruthless moral inventory. Isn't that just a great turn of the phrase? A ruthless moral inventory. Have you ever done that? I did that this summer. It sucks. Doing a ruthless moral inventory is painful. 
You're trying to write down like, okay, I'm not good at this, and I'm not good at this. Oh, geez, I need a drink. What is going on? A ruthless moral inventory for me has been the backdrop in which I can see God saying, I can help you here. I can help you here. I can make a difference here. Not me saying this. God saying this to me. Travis, open up the doors for me to influence you. To be someone who's a good leader to your team and a good caretaker of your family. Take a ruthless moral inventory. Hold it out to God. Don't post it on Facebook. And against that backdrop, you can clearly see yourself, your needs, and the opportunities for God's justice and his kindness to just run in your life. Don't get cynical about kindness. Get specific. Friends, I promised us that we'll take time to do this, and we are going to do this now. And as we close, I'm going to invite Stephanie and Nick to come back up here. And I've confessed to you guys that I started out this week thinking, I don't have a problem with judgment. And maybe you're thinking that too. Maybe the case hasn't been made. That's fine. There's something in each of us that desires to confess and to share with God the places of struggle and brokenness and pain and fear. And when we do that together, it's powerful. It's one of the most powerful things we can do together in worship. Not that we're going to say what we're struggling with out loud. We're not going to write it down. We're just going to have this time in the quiet of our hearts to come before our mighty and good God, before we come to this table, which reflects his goodness. And to just say like, oh, this was such a bummer this week. Would you help me? Would you heal me? Would you hear my confession? And he will. So I invite you now to assume a posture that's comfortable for you for prayer. If you want to kneel, you're welcome to kneel. It's not weird to do that before the Lord. And I want to invite us to prepare our hearts to come to the table by praying and asking for God to help us with his good judgment, with his kindness. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we come to you humble that you would speak to us through your word. Tired, maybe. Heartsick for our home with you and your kingdom. Maybe we're not convinced that we need help. May this be the beginning of a great journey for each of us toward honesty and faithfulness that you will build, that you will bring. Throughout the history of the church, the people have gathered together to confess and to say, we don't have it. Only our Savior is our hope. It's not being smart. It's not being pretty. It's not being perfect. It's in Christ. So, Father, in these silent moments where we're just going to be quiet and hear these notes from the guitar and just hold out to you our places of brokenness, give us courage. Fill us with your spirit. These are the steps you want us to take toward that ruthless moral inventory. May it begin. Hear us now as we confess silence.